God's presence, God's people, God's purpose, God's plan. These have always been the essential ingredients of the church. We find a recording of Jesus's birth, life, death, and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. That letter was the first of a two-part work, the second being the Book of Acts. In this letter, Luke recalls Jesus's ascension and commission, the spread of the Gospels, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the early church. In the past, God's presence was with his people in one place at one time. But early on in Acts, Pentecost occurs and God's promised Holy Spirit is unleashed in power, filling those who would receive and overflowing to those around them. With this new Holy Spirit power, the church began to explode, stirring among thousands as the message grew and spread. The mission of the church has been made clear by Jesus himself. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, more than 2,000 years later, God's presence is still being unleashed among God's people, and we are part of God's continued purpose and God's continued plan as the Holy Spirit moves in and through us. Well, good morning. It is good to have you here in the room. And those of you who are worshiping with us online, so glad that you're with us from wherever you are with us. And those in Skagit, thanks for being with us today with Pastor Scott and Tia's back with us there. And, and so great to have you here. Now, this last Wednesday at 3.20 in the afternoon, there was an astronomical event that took place. Not not, um, not terribly unusual, not that rare, but astronomical nonetheless. At 3.20 uh, p.m. on Wednesday afternoon, the sun traveled across the celestial equator, thereby making its rays perfectly perpendicular to the axis of the Earth, which means at that moment, Earth's axis was neither tor turn, uh, tilted toward nor away from the sun. That in a moment marks the, what is referred to as the autumnal equinox, and there officially marks the end of summer and the start of fall, which for some of you causes great mourning. For others of you, it's all sorts of pumpkin spice delight as we enter into the fall. The reason I tell you that is because in 30 or 40, actually 40 minutes from now, I will finish this, well, 40-ish minutes from now, I will finish, sometime this afternoon, I will finish this sermon and that will officially mark the end of our summer series as we have journeyed through the book of Acts. We started this series the week before the summer solstice. We're finishing it the weekend after the, the autumnal equinox, an entire quarter of the year, a full season. We have been in this journey with the book of Acts. And some of you, as I say, as we finish up today, some of you will be mourning that. Some of you will be rejoicing saying, finally, we can get on to something else. I just want to say personally, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a, a, a lover of God's Word, this journey, I have thoroughly enjoyed our extended, while not exhaustive, our extended study and journey into this epic saga that Dr. Luke records for us, giving us the highlights of the first 30 years of the Church of Jesus Christ. After Jesus was crucified, he's resurrected, he's re ready to be physically and spiritually exalted to the highest place. He meets with his followers in Jerusalem, gives them some parting remarks, and now there's maybe a few hundred followers of Jesus who are Jewish. 
But 10 days later, there's this outpouring, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the church explodes. And over the course of the next 30 years, it's no longer just a few hundred of the Jewish followers in Jerusalem. Now it spreads throughout the entire Roman Empire, and there are literally tens and thousands and tens of thousands of followers of Jesus, not just Jewish, now as many or more Gentiles who are following this and are part of this, this church. And as I've said from the beginning, as Luke records all this in the book of Acts, these first 30 years, it's not just the history of the church, it's his story of the church, and it doesn't end there. It's such an amazing thing as we've been journeying through that. And so as we've been journeying through that, we will continue to, to uh, finish this up today. If you want to follow along, we're at the back end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. I want to catch you up to speed. If you were here last week, this is a little review. If you weren't, it'll kind of get you back into the context of it. Last week, we see that the Apostle Paul is making his long-awaited journey to Rome. He's been wanting to go there for four, five, six, seven years. He's been wanting to go to Rome. Finally, he's going. It's a Mediterranean cruise. All seems fine. But that cruise would have a point where it would turn and it would become very eventful and even destructive. And that turning point was when they were on the island of Crete and it was late in the sailing year. It was one of those times where you're not sure if this is too late to be sailing. And Paul says, we need to stop. Trust me, I've been in a few shipwrecks. I, I know how this works. And yet there was the uh, captain of the ship and the owner of the ship and a centurion named Julius who said, no, we need to go. We're not going to go all the way to Rome. We're just going to go 40 miles along the coast of Crete from a little place called Fair Havens, we're going to go just 40 miles along the coast. It's a simple little thing, less than a day. We're just going to go up there to a place called Phoenix, and there we will winter. Paul says, bad idea. They go anyway. On this short little journey up along the coast of Crete, this enormous storm comes in from the north and blows them off course. And then they're lost. They're out there for days. They've blown out to sea. They have no idea which direction they're even going. They haven't seen the sun or moon for, or stars for days. They have no, uh, no uh, control of where the ship is going. It, the ship is falling apart. They've got it all strapped together. They haven't eaten for a while. And in the midst of this storm, I'll remind you, Paul says this. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. Now, quick review, and then we'll, we'll pick up. Back to the map that we've been looking at. So they leave Caesarea. He goes out here. They, they head to Crete. This is where he says, we need to stop here. They said, no, we're just going to go 40 miles to Phoenix. The winds blow through. They're lost out here. They think they're going to run up against the, the sandbars of, of Sirtis here in, in Egypt. But they're out here lost at sea, drifting. They end up washing up on a little island called Malta, 586 miles away from where they thought they were going. They were going to take a 40-mile journey, 586 miles. 14 days they've been adrift, 14 days they've been at sea, 14 days they've been in a storm, not having a clue where they are. And now they have lost all their possessions, they've lost the cargo of grain, and the boat itself has been broken up by the waves. As I was thinking about that whole thing, 586 miles off course, 14 days out at sea, everything lost, I thought about that old saying, you probably heard it before. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. They experienced that. It was a decision. It's not a big deal. Everyone's doing it. We can get away. It's just 40 miles. But it took them farther than they wanted to go. You know, 
held them longer than they wanted to stay and cost them far more than they wanted to pay. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to find, well, they'll pick up from Malta, they'll go out here to Sicily, to Syracuse, then to the toe of the boot of Italy, then over here to this, this port called Putioli. Kind of sounds Italian. And then they'll take the road on up to Rome. We'll get to that. All right. But one of the things I want to point out, and, I, and I've mentioned this before, is that when God's at work, and this comes back to the title of our series, when God's at work, when he has a plan, no shipwreck, no storm, no poor decision, no not even sin itself can keep God's work from happening. I mean, his church, this work of the Spirit is now unleashed and it's unhindered and it's unstoppable. And we see the unconquerable church of Jesus Christ. That no matter what happens, when, when we talk about the church of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about a building. Uh, when Paul was in Athens, he said to them, he said, listen, the God of, uh, that who created the heavens and earth does not live in temples made by hand. He doesn't live in man-made temples. He lives in a new temple, and the temple is his followers, his believers, those who've been redeemed, who've been filled with his spirit. He dwells right within us, and this temple, this church that Jesus lives in is unconquerable. Now, the church of Jesus Christ has been banned, it's been beaten, it's been burned, it's been prosecuted, it's been imprisoned, it's been persecuted, it has been slandered, it has been maligned, it has been, it has been threatened, it has been oppressed, it has been opposed by individuals, by groups, by governments, and by the demonic forces of hell itself, and yet the church of Jesus Christ is unconquerable. The plans of God are unthwartable, and the power of the Holy Spirit is indefatigable, and the church of Jesus Christ is unleashed, unhindered, and unstoppable. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, I will build on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it, and we get to be a part of that church and that story, that is such an amazing thing. This isn't just a fable from the Bible. This is the reality that we are a part of. Now, it's almost like I'm getting ready to start preaching. So let's get back to our story. So Paul and, and everybody, they're on Malta. And they, they, they're stuck there. Their ship broke apart. They have no possessions left. The people of Malta, we talked about this last week. The people of Malta have experienced Paul and his companions. The Grand Poobah, you know, he, he was uh, bitten and, and or he was sick and, and Paul healed him. All, all amazing stuff. Late in the winter, early in the spring, when everyone goes to Mexico, shout out to an old John Denver song that probably none of you have ever heard. That year, they decide to head on to Rome. This is where we pick up. It says, after three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship, again, from Egypt, probably another grain ship, an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Now, this is what I love. This, this book is written by Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke goes into to great uh, extent of research, and he's very much detail-oriented. So he throws this in, and, and it's not just for color. He says this ship has this figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. In Greek mythology, in the Greek gods, Castor and Pollux are twin brothers of their father, Zeus, and they're known as kind of the, um, I don't know, the patrons of the sea, the protectors of the sailors. And what I love about this, and I don't know how it works out in Greek, but in English it works out really great. Because, because Luke uses this word figurehead, and it's a literal and figurative of this word. Literally, when, you know, you've seen the pictures of the big ships and there's this woman on the front, this carving, there's this 
in the image on the front, that, that statue was actually referred to as a figurehead. So this ship had these two brothers, these twin brothers. They're the figurehead. But I love the figurative use of this word as they're setting out to sea. These guys, Castor and Pollux, they're a figurehead. The, the figurative version of that is someone who has a title, someone who has a position, but has no authority. And I think Luke throws it out there. He said, yeah, we're on a boat with these two guys who are the protectors of the sea. But we know they're just a figurehead. They've got that title. They've got no authority. We know the one who protects us. We know the one who saw us through the storm. We know the one who allowed us to continue to live. And so away they go. And as I said, they, they travel up and they go to uh, Puteoli. And then they, they get onto the shore. And then they take the road up to Rome. Maybe you've heard this phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Or maybe not. Um, there's a phrase, all roads lead to Rome. It, it's, it's a historic phrase. Because in the Roman Empire, the thing that allowed the Romans to not only conquer, but to control and to unify the, the greatest empire on the face of the planet was their road system. And they had a very, a very intricate and um, carefully planned out road system. In the Roman Empire, it's, it's what connected things or what allowed them to, to pass from region to region. There were over 250,000 miles of Roman roads that connected the whole empire. And the construction of them was pretty amazing as well, far beyond its time. Not just dirt paths, not just gravel roads, but the construction of these roads with the, the, the base layer and these multiple strata so that it would, it would last and then the paving on top and there was, there was a camber so that when it rained, the water would drain off and there were often curbs and there was drainage systems and they would last the way they were constructed. These roads would last. In fact, very often when we're in Israel, one of the little side options, when we're on the Mount of Beatitudes, one of the options we, we often take is that if people want to hike down from the Mount of Beatitudes down to the Sea of Galilee, we can do that. And there's a portion on that trail where it, you'll never find this in any guidebook, but there's this little portion of the old Via Maris, the Roman road, the way of the sea, and the, and the stones, the paving of this 2,000-year-old road is still there. A, a few years ago, my wife and I walked across Spain on the Camino de Santiago, and in our book, one day it said, today you'll be walking on one of the ancient Roman roadways. Still there, still in use. I mean, the way that they constructed it. Now, the earliest and strategically most important road in the Roman uh, road system was a, a road called Via Appius, the Appian Way. And it was built in uh, 312 B.C., Paul and his companions get on this road, this Roman road, the Appian Way. And this is what we read. So he came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Somehow, the followers of Jesus, the brothers, the church in Rome, heard that Paul was on his way. And they decided, instead of waiting for him to get to Rome, let's go meet him. Let's go greet him. Let's encourage him. Let's walk with them. And some of them went to this forum. The forum was 40 miles south of Rome. So these followers of Jesus who've heard about Paul, they travel 40 miles. Others go to the three taverns. The three taverns are 30 miles south of Rome. I think what happened is they were all heading to the forum. Some of them got to 30 miles and said, there's three taverns here. You guys go ahead. We're going to hang at the tab. Regardless, 
there's a group of people 40 miles out, there's another group 30 miles out, and they meet him. And now they all travel back to Rome. Verse uh, 16 is such an important verse. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Paul comes into Rome. He has been wanting to come to Rome for years. Five, six, seven years he's been thinking, I need to get to Rome. Paul has seen incredible Roman cities. He was in Caesarea Philippi, a little Rome away from Rome, a little model of Rome there, uh, or Caesarea Maritima. He was there for, for two years. He'd been to the Decapolis on the east side of the Jordan River, all these Roman cities. He'd been to Ephesus with its temple to Artemis, one of the wonders of the ancient world, and its theater. He had been to Corinth with the Parthenon. He had been to Athens. He had seen all these, and now he comes to Rome, the greatest city on the planet and the greatest empire on the entire face of earth. And he comes to Rome. He's been wanting to be here for so long. And he's allowed to live by himself. He's a prisoner but he's not in prison. He's kind of on house arrest, which is a much better situation for him. And he's given a bit of an ankle bracelet. It's called a soldier to guard him. There's a soldier that will be with him 24-7. Now, Paul's not a threat to the society, and he's not really a threat to flee. But they put a soldier there with him. As we'll see later, this will be a blessing and actually a benefit to the kingdom of God. And there's one part where it's, it's implied that he's actually chained to that soldier. May or may not have been the case, but there's one little phrase that, that kind of gives that implication that he is chained to a guard 24-7. So, here he is. And what we find now is what we'll call Paul's prison ministry. Because he's not really in prison but he's on house arrest. He's detained, and there he'll be in his own house. So he gets in this home. He gets established. He's got this guard. And three days later, I'm going to summarize. You can read this for yourself in in, uh, Acts 28. Three days later, he has some of the Jewish leaders from Rome come to visit him. This is often his case, uh, if you've been with us. He'll go into a city. The first thing he'll do, he'll go to the synagogue. He'll talk to the Jewish people. Well, he's not allowed to go to the synagogue, So he sends probably Luke or Aristarchus, one of his traveling companions, probably says, go get the leaders from the the Jewish synagogue and have them come speak to me. So they come to his house. He says, listen, (laughs) I don't know what you've heard about me, but it's not true. He says, I was arrested, but they could find no charge against me that would stick. And and whatever they said, I've not not done anything against our people or our customs of, of any of that. And yet the Jewish people in Jerusalem while I was innocent, they would have none of it. So I appealed to Caesar. That's why I'm here. And I just want to tell you, it's for the hope of Israel is why I'm in this chain. And their response was, well, we never got any letter from Jerusalem. They never sent anything. We, we, we didn't hear anything. But we've heard about this group, these followers of this resurrected Jesus, followers of the way, and, and we, we understand that there's trouble anywhere they go, and, and we want to, we're curious, we're concerned, we'd like to hear a little bit more about it. So, verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, I had that highlighted because some of you think I preached long. <laughs> From morning till evening. Not 40-some minutes, lightweights, from morning 
till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. I love this. Here comes the Jewish leaders and a whole bunch of other people to his house. And Paul... Paul is in his sweet spot. You remember, he was a leading Pharisee. He has probably memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He knows very well the laws of Moses. He knows the wisdom literature of the Psalms and the, and the Song of Solomon and, and the Proverbs. He knows all the prophets. He, he knows all that. And he says, let me just explain all this because he has come to understand how all of that points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. And from morning till evening, he says, sit back, because here we go. And I think he just starts in Genesis. Let me tell you about Adam, and let me tell you this. There's a second Adam, and in Adam, all of us died, but in Jesus, all of us can live. And let me tell you about Abraham, and this covenant with Abraham. There's a new covenant, by the way, but Abraham, he sacrificed, or was asked to sacrifice his son, but God intervened, but God sent his son and sacrificed his son so that we could be freed. And let me tell you about Moses, because Moses took his people out of bondage and through the Red Sea, and Jesus comes and takes us out of the bondage of sin and through the sea of death and gives us life into the promised land. And as far as all the Levitical stuff in the tabernacle and the showbread, and Jesus is the bread of life and that lampstand, and Jesus is the light of the world. And here it is in the Holy of Holies, and Jesus is now the Holy of Holies. And as far as the whole sacrificial thing, Jesus is the final sacrifice. He's the lamb that satisfies the final thing. So he's just and justifier. And remember in Proverbs, uh, Psalm chapter 22, where it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes that. And if you read the whole Psalm, that's him. And then in Isaiah, there's all this Christmas stuff about he will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And that was Jesus. And then the, the suffering Savior of, of Isaiah 53 and Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days. And, and then, and then, and then uh, with the Hosea and his wife, that the bride that was so dis, disloyal and yet we are the bride of Christ. And from Genesis to Malachi, from morning till evening, he says, don't you see how clear it is? It all points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. And he goes on and on and on. It's so clear to him. And some of them say, you're right. And they're convinced. And others are not willing to believe it. And so he quotes Isaiah, a passage that kind of stung a little bit. A passage where Isaiah said, you'll be forever hearing, but not understanding. You'll be forever seeing, but not perceiving. If you don't want this, I'll go to the Gentiles, which is his case. He always does this. And he would write about it in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he would say. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. And so here he is in his home, and all this is taking place. Well, we get down to the last two verses of the entire book of Luke. And this is what I want us to see. Verse 31, 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. For two whole years, he's waiting to stand trial. He's appealed to Caesar. He's waiting to stand before the emperor. And for two years now, He's in his own house that he's rented, but there's no limitation. He welcomes all who came to see him. And throughout those two years, he doesn't waste those two years. He says, let's leverage this. 
Let's utilize this. Let's make the best of this boldly and without hindrance. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you right now are saying, whew, finally we're done. The last two verses. We're done. This is a short sermon. Finally, the sermon and the series is over. Nah. I believe that based on these two verses, honestly, I could preach an entire series because of what happens and what's alluded to in these two verses. And let me, for the rest of our time, just give you some thoughts about what this means for two whole years that Paul had just welcomed anybody into his home and he boldly, without hindrance, proclaims the kingdom of God and points them to Jesus. We'll start with the local church. The local church. Now, it says that when he was, you know, had, had landed in uh, Puteoli, that the brothers came to meet him. We'd, Paul's never been to Rome. Paul didn't plant the church in Rome. We're not really sure how the church started in Rome. It, it would have been after the day of Pentecost, and, and, and maybe it was when there was the persecution and people dispersed, but that's a long way to go. Maybe, maybe it was with Priscilla and Aquila. They come into play later, so maybe it was that. Maybe, maybe it was that, Cornelius, the centurion that was at Caesarea Maritima, if you remember that, he was of the Italian regiment, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he and his family became followers of Jesus, and maybe, maybe after his deployment to Caesarea, he went back home to Rome, and maybe he started, we don't know how it started, but there are some brothers from Rome, there are followers of Jesus in Rome. And, and Paul has desired to see them. Four years before this, four years before this, he wrote them a letter, and in that letter, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may mutually be encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. He's not just talking about the two years in the waiting room in Caesarea. He wrote this two years before that. I mean, he's been wanting to go see them for a long time. In order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. He said, the reason I wanted to come to Rome is I wanted to encourage you and build you up and strengthen you. I wanted to be encouraged by you. And I wanted to see a harvest like I've seen in every other city I've gone to where the truth of Jesus and the kingdom of God and his forgiveness and his grace and his life is proclaimed and people become followers. We've seen it everywhere and I want to see it even greater in Rome. He says, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. So here he comes to Rome and here are the brothers and the very thing that he longed to do, he starts doing. People are free to come to his house and you know He's teaching the same thing. He's teaching throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, how it all pointed to Jesus. He's teaching what Jesus has taught, all the things about the kingdom of God. There's Bible studies. There's prayer meetings. There's worship sessions. There's preaching. And who knows, maybe the house church is meeting in his house. And as the church continues to grow, there are so many people, they can't all fit in his house. And so maybe they go to two services or three nights. Or maybe there's a house church that comes that there's... They, People have to choose which night, and every night of the week, maybe there's a church service that's happening in his house. He's got nothing else to do. He can't leave the house, and they're coming in, and they're hearing the Word of God, and they're growing, and they're telling their friends, and there's a harvest that's taking place, and all this is happening. You read in Romans 16, in the letter that he wrote four years before, 
he gives a personal greeting by name to 26 people who are in the church in Rome. He has some connections. They're coming over. They love him. He loves them. And they're just pouring out. And the local church is growing and being strengthened for these two years when he can't leave the house. But the church continues to flourish and grow. Not just the church, but there's also his companions. That for two whole years he stayed in his own rented house, but what about his companions? You see, there's the local church, and, and maybe Cornelius was part of that, and maybe Priscilla and Aquila had come back. But what about his companions? Well, we know that Dr. Luke was traveling with him. We know that Aristarchus was traveling with him. They're with him. But if you do a little sleuthing through some of his other writings, you'll see that there are other individuals that have come and gone, that visit him, that bring stuff to him, that takes things from him while he's at Rome. But yes, there, there's Luke and there's, there's Aristarchus. But then there's also young Timothy. Timothy, whose mother and grandmother became followers of Jesus under Paul's preaching in Lystra on his first uh, missionary journey. And on his second, ministry, second uh, missionary journey, he takes Timothy and kind of brings him along and just pours into him. And Timothy comes to visit him. And, and Timothy is, is, is like his son in the faith that he's just believed in and poured into. And Timothy would later be appointed as the bishop over the church in Ephesus, a very prominent church. There's a man named Demas who comes to visit Paul while he's in Rome. And Demas is considered a companion, a, a partner in ministry with Paul. And Demas doesn't have a good ending. I think it's in 2 Timothy where it says, Demas has deserted me because his love for the world and all that it offers. Demas walked away from the faith. There's a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras was, uh, was with Paul in Ephesus and probably left from Ephesus and started the church in Colossae and probably also the church in Hierapolis and probably also the church in Laodicea. These churches that Paul didn't start, but Epaphras was a part of that. And he was there. There's a guy named Epaphroditus. And he was from Philippi. When Paul had been in Philippi with, with Lydia and, and with the Philippian jailer, and Epaphroditus becomes a follower as well. And he actually is sent from the church to bring a care package to Paul. You know, and, and, then there's, and then there's John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. He'd been on the first missionary journey, and then after they got off the island of, of Cyprus, he, he, whatever reason, he bails on that. Paul doesn't want to have anything to do with him. But later... Paul says, bring Mark to me. Bring John Mark. He's, he's helpful to me in my ministry. And John Mark comes. There's a guy that we don't know a lot about. His name is Jesus. They also called him Justice. And he's a part of that as well. There's a guy named Tychicus who's there with Paul. And he comes in. And Paul sends him. And he, and he, and he sends him off to, to Ephesus and, and to, uh, to, with the, the letter and to the Colossians. And he sends him off. There's a runaway slave called Onesimus who's run away and somehow found his way to Rome and somehow find his way to Paul. And Paul talks to him, leads him to the Lord, whatever, sends him back to his owner and sends a letter to Philemon and says, listen, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. He's not just a slave. He's your brother. And all these companions, and what you see, these are young men and guys that, that Paul has poured into. They're elders, they're pastors, they're bishops. And Paul is continuing, while he's stuck in Rome, Paul is continuing to lead the church throughout Asia Minor. All this is happening for those two years. They're coming and going. They're bringing news. He's sending letters out. He's telling them what's up and, and what needs to be corrected and where needs to be encouragement, all this stuff that's happening. In addition to what's happening in the local church and with his companions, um, I think one of the greatest ones is what's happening 
with the Roman guards. Remember, there's someone with him 24-7. It may be chained to him. You can see that as limited. You know what Paul says? Captive audience. Probably four to six hour shifts. That means there's four to six different guards that will be there every single day for two years. 365 days, 24 hours a day for two full years. There's this rotation of these Roman guards, and you know what they're hearing? You know what they're seeing? You know what they're experiencing? You know what they're being a part of? The local church coming in, hearing about Jesus, worshiping God, praying, celebrating, fellowshiping, hearing what's happening in Asia Minor. They're being exposed to that. And you don't think Paul is going to be talking to them about the gospel? You don't think the church is going to be surrounding them and praying for them? You don't think they're going to be included in all this? You don't think Paul's going to be saying, hey, have you ever heard of a guy named Cornelius? I know, he's a legend around here. Let me tell you, he's a follower of this Jesus. You ought to check this out. You ever hear of a guy named Julius? Yeah, I traveled with him. Saved his life, actually. We are on a shipwreck together. These guys are centurions. You ought to hear their, their story. And when he writes to the church in Philippi, he says this. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being stuck in Rome, has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear out the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Whole palace guard. Some of your Bibles may have an asterisk, or some of them may say the whole praetorian guard. Listen, guarding Paul was light duty. Not a lot to do. But these weren't like rookie soldiers. These weren't like guards on probation just trying to figure things. These were the praetorian guard. These were the elite. These were hand-selected Um, bodyguards for the emperor. They were the elite select group. They were paid more than other guards. And he says, and the whole praetorian guard knows that I'm in chains for Christ. They know why I'm here. They're hearing the message of Jesus. They're hearing the kingdom of God. They're hearing the good news that their gods are worthless and there's one true living God that's raised from the dead and gives them resurrection life and the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, at the end of that book, at the end of that letter in Philippians, he says, all the saints, followers of Jesus, people of the church, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So here it is. He's infiltrated with the gospel, the good news, the praetorian guard in Caesar's household. He writes to Philippi, and and, and all these guys are saying, hey, tell them we said hi. Never been there. We might get deployed there. If so, we know where our local church is going to be. He's doing that. And the guards are becoming followers of Jesus. It's an amazing thing what happens for these two years. Two full years, he pours into the church. He's he's sending his bishops and pastors and elders around to these other churches, and he's pouring into these Roman guards, and it's changing their lives. And then there's the letters. The letters. While he's there, he sends these guys out to these churches, but some some of them have some issues so deep they need to hear directly from Paul. And Paul writes them letters. Maybe you've heard of the letter from a Birmingham jail. Martin Luther King Jr. writes a letter to the clergy. And in that letter, he rebukes, he corrects, he instructs, he exhorts, he invites. And Paul writes letters from a Roman jail. And in these letters, he corrects, he instructs, he exhorts, he invites, he encourages. While he's in Rome, he writes these letters. He's not thinking, oh, I'm going to write the Bible. (laughs) He's writing letters to people that he loved, churches, some of them that he planted 
individuals that needed some, some encouragement, some instruction. In, in theological circles, these letters are referred to as the, um, the prison epistles. There, there's four of them. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And he writes these letters, not thinking, oh, this someday will be a part of the Bible and they'll study it in Bellingham, Washington. He's writing these letters to these churches. Ephesus, he had spent three years in Ephesus. God had done amazing things. That was that hub city. The whole area was, was evangelized because of what happened in Ephesus and the people that burned all their little statues to the goddess Artemis and what happened there and the big riot and he writes to this church in Ephesus, he writes them a letter, and what profound words and what profound truths that we glean from a letter he writes while he's waiting in Rome. It is by grace you are saved, he would write. It is by grace you are saved through faith, not by works. It's a gift of God, not by, not by something you've done. So no one can boast. We are God's workmanship, created for good works in Christ, which he has prepared in advance for us. Or that great prayer, I pray that you being rooted and established in love would have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. Or he would write these words, and he lives these words. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He's living this out. He's making the most of every opportunity. He's stuck in Rome, going to pour into the church, going to pour into his leaders, going to pour into the guards. He lives it. He writes it. It applies to us. That church in Philippi, they didn't even have a synagogue. Lydia, the seller of purple, he and Silas got beaten and put in jail. They're singing. The whole jail breaks open. The jailer becomes a follower of Jesus. Epaphroditus becomes a follower of Jesus. And he writes them a letter just to encourage them. Such a joy in this, in this church. I'm convinced, he says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He would write to them and instruct them, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He would say to them, not that I've already obtained it or have already been made perfect, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. He would say to them, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And how about this one? While he's stuck in Rome, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And he writes in this letter, he's living it, they're experiencing it, and it applies to us today, 2,000 years later. The Colossian letter, this church that Epaphras started and oversees, he finds out that there's some heresy about Jesus, some poor teaching about Jesus. And he needs to set it straight. And he starts writing about Jesus. 
He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You've got to get it straight, he says to them. Jesus is God in his fullness. He is over all things, the supremacy of Christ. And he would encourage them with the similar words, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. He's lived this for his whole ministry. He's instructing them and he tells us, this is how we live 2,000 years ago. The letters that he wrote. And God used all of that. You see, when you go back and you begin to look at this, for two whole years, he stayed there. And he boldly, without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God, taught about the Lord Jesus, and what he did in those two years still impacts us today. Wow! See, I could go on and on about these last two verses. And Luke writes, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he stops. Wait a second, Luke! You can't leave us hanging like this! What about the story, Luke? I mean, he's waiting to go on trial. Did he ever get in front of the emperor? Like, did he get convicted and executed? Tell us about it, Luke. Did, did he get acquitted and released? Did, did he ever get to Spain? I know he wanted to go to Spain. Did he ever get to... You can't stop there. Luke's a good writer, but he's no Paul Harvey. Because <laughs> we never get the rest of the story. Some of you are like, ask your grandparents. He just comes and says, taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Good day? No! Not good day. You're leaving us hanging. The story isn't complete. But I think this is intentional. And I think it's by design. Because Luke, as he writes this, he tells about these first 30 years. But this isn't the end of the story. In fact, it's not even the beginning of the end. To quote Winston Churchill, it's merely the end of the beginning. It's just getting out of the gate. It's just getting off the starting blocks. These are just the first 30 years. This is just the opening paragraph of what God is going to do. He's going to continue to work, and his church will continue to go forward. You see, Jesus, when this whole thing started, Jesus gave him these words, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's made it to Rome, but it hasn't made it to the ends of the earth. It continues on. And maybe what Luke is saying in not so many words is quoting a lyric <laughs> from a gal 15 years ago or better N Natasha Bedingfield, maybe you remember this, a song called Unwritten. Feel the rain on your skin. All right. There's a lyric in there, and I think it's what, what Luke is saying as he ends this kind of abruptly. It says, today is where your book begins. The rest is still unwritten. 
And maybe he stops it abruptly because he says, this is not the end. Today, today is where your book begins. The rest is still unwritten. His story is still being written. It's still being written 2,000 years later, clear across the planet. It's still being written in Cornwall Church. And what if, as we get to the end of, this, of, the, of the book, and we get to the end of the series, we recognize it's just the beginning of our next chapter in this story that he's been writing. And what if we as individual followers of Jesus recognized that nothing has changed? The gospel, the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, it's all the same. We should not be cowering in a corner just waiting for Jesus to come back. We should boldly be going forward in the hope of the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And what if we began to pray, God, I want my life to be open to your Holy Spirit that you would be unleashed and unhindered and unstoppable in the big or small ways, however you want, so that your story continues to be written. All right.